Thessalonians, we are nearing the end of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're in chapter 5. But the whole book has been really pressing forward this idea of how the gospel influences our lives, how every aspect of our life is influenced by the gospel. And in order to help us remember the gospel presentation, we've been using this little picture to kind of inspire us to remember the gospel presentation. And if you've not been here or you haven't seen it online, this represents cold fingers juggling what? Green reindeer. Cold fingers juggling green reindeer. And no, I'm not crazy, and no, the heat has not gotten to me. This is the gospel presentation in a mnemonic form to help us remember we have to talk about creation, cold. We have to talk about the fall, fingers. We have to talk about God's judgment, juggling. We have to talk about grace, green. And we have to ask for a response. Do you believe this? That's where we get our reindeer. So, cold fingers juggling green reindeers is a great, quick little way for you to remember what the gospel presentation presents. It presents creation, the fall, God's judgment or justice. It creates the great story or presents the great story of grace. That's Jesus, the cross, all of that. And the response, do you believe it? And so Paul was there in Thessaloniki, and he witnessed to people day in and day out. A church grew up, and the church had to kind of coexist by itself because Paul had to leave town because of the threat of being killed. So Paul writes back, sends Timothy, gets the report back from Timothy, and just encourages them. And part of this encouragement that they needed as a church was what is going to happen in the end times. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I was driving in the evening, and uh, over there on Prairie and Forth, there was an accident, or I'm guessing an accident, because the police had the entire road just shut off with cones and police cars. And you know what my first instinct was? I wonder what happened. My second instinct, which I did not act upon, was I should probably stop and ask. What was I thinking? No, you don't stop and ask. But as we're passing the police officers and making a detour, I thought to myself, I really want to find out what happened. I'm driving, so I can't stare. So I asked Sarah, you know, look and see if there's, you can see anything, like a chalk outline or something like that. You know, what happened? Uh, of course, nothing, and we saw a car getting put up on a, a tow truck, so it must have been an accident. But there was that inquisitiveness immediately in my mind of what happened. Combine that with this godly character called patience. The idea of when are we going to get there, how much longer, how much further, what happened, you have to wait. So you have this inquisitiveness, what happened, and you have this <laughs> godly character trait of patience. Those two things are difficult to combine, uh, but we're called to combine it. And nowhere is it more difficult to combine than when you start talking about the end times. Because we are inquisitive, we want to know what happens, what will happen next, what will happen next, what will happen next, how do I know what's going to happen, and God says, I'm not going to tell you. And we, oh, that's so frustrating because we want to know. We are inquisitive. We want to know what will happen. What will the events be? What will happen first? What will happen next? Everybody has a different opinion. What, what's going to happen? God says, patience. 
God combines that inquisitiveness with patience in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in the first few verses. Paul writes to them, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now, brothers and sisters, remember he uses this phrase 14 times to convey the connectiveness of God's people, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates Okay, good. He's going to start talking about times and dates because we want to know the actual events of what happens when the Lord returns. Now, concerning times and dates, we need not write to you. Oh, actually, Paul, you do. They're asking what's going to happen next because people have said, oh, Jesus has returned. What, what, what are we supposed to do? We need to know the dates and times. And Paul starts it by saying, I don't have to write to you about the dates and times. Oh. I can imagine they were super excited when Paul started in chapter 4 talking about the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the events of the end times because they were eager to find out exactly what was happening. Paul tells them a little bit about it in chapter 4, and now he gets to the meat of it. When is it going to happen? We know some of the details, but when is it happening, Paul? Don't worry, I don't have to tell you. <sighs> Paul, you do need to tell us. But then he explains in verse 2 why he doesn't have to tell us. He says... For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You're right. Jesus has said many times, and Matthew in particular, it's going to happen like a thief in the night. No one's going to know the day or the time. No one's going to announce it ahead of time. You're right, Paul. You're reminding us of something that Jesus has already told us. The day and the time is not going to be communicated to us. It's not going to be, and you can list, you can name any day or time that you want. God doesn't operate that way. He operates on this principle of faith, trust, and confidence. Do you have faith, trust, and confidence that God knows what he's doing? Yes. Do you have faith, trust, and confidence that he knows best? Oh, that's where we get into conflict sometimes with God. Because we have the audacity and the boldness at times to say, uh, no, I think my opinion kind of matters here. Oh. And then we get into that trouble of patience and inquisitiveness. We want to know, but God has said, be patient. I'm not going to tell you the day or the time. I'm going to tell you some of the things that are going to be happening beforehand and maybe some of the things in the process, but the moment it happens, it's basically like a thief breaking into your home. The thief usually, I think, I would like to say always, but you get in trouble when you say always because someone always has an example of not always, but I like to think that most of the time a thief does not pre-announce, I'm coming into your house and robbing. Generally, right? I mean, we'd all pretty much admit that usually they don't uh, post on Facebook or Twitter, first of all, hey, I'm going to break into this house this evening. Anybody want to come and watch? Usually they don't do that. Usually it is when you least expect it. And there are some patterns. Usually happens in the afternoons during the day or late at night when no one is home, usually. But Paul says, I don't have to tell you about the day and the time of the day of the Lord because you already know what it's going, when it's going to happen. It's going to happen when a thief enters a house to rob it. The same type of scenario 
when you least expect it. In fact, he continues in verse 3 and says, while people are saying, peace and safety, meaning, hey, we got it perfectly under control. Everything is taken care of. There is no need to worry. It can't be today because we are totally protected today. He says, so when people are starting to shout, peace and safety, know this, that destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The thief doesn't announce, but Paul says, there's going to be, in our culture at large, a general sense of Jesus isn't coming back. God's not coming back. Things aren't going to end. Oh, things might be bad and uncomfortable, but don't listen to those naysayers, those biblical people who are saying the end is near. Or those people with those placards out on the street. The end is near, shouting and screaming. The end is near. The end is near. Uh, the end has been near for over 2,000 years, okay? Every day that we live, the end is even nearer. We get that. But there will be a cultural sense of none of this matters. And so the culture is saying, sleep and don't worry about it. There's plenty of time to get right with God. If there is a God, plenty of time for that. Right now, it's a time to eat, drink, and be merry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about reckoning with God. Probably isn't true. So as culture takes on that framework of dismissing God completely, no faith, trust, or confidence, in fact, a denial of God, Paul says that's probably the time when people least expect it, that it is inevitably going to happen. I think he mentions a lady having a baby here because the imagery is very clear. When labor starts, what's going to happen after labor? A baby. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And so Paul says, just as the world says, peace and safety, calm and rest, don't worry about God, inevitably, with great surety, God will enter into the picture and wake the world up. In fact, in Matthew chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 10, oh, wow, there is no 2 Peter chapter 10, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, uh, you'd be searching a long time for 2 Peter chapter 10, uh, and if you ever find that, let me know. But it says, Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, a very common uh, illustration. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is cataclysmic, the events of the last day. So we know it hasn't happened yet because we're still here, and the earth is still here, and the elements are still here. Nothing has been destroyed. It, it suffers the pains of sin, yes, but it's still here uh, because that was a common thought, especially during the first century, that Jesus has already returned, and this is the kingdom of God we have now. Uh, but Peter, Paul, the apostles, even Jesus himself said, no, 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 that hasn't happened yet. There's going to be a cataclysmic event where the world itself will be shook to the very foundations, where the elements of our world will be radically changed. 
And God tells us in Revelation it's because he's ushering in a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, starting and setting that entire process that Adam and Eve screwed up in Genesis chapter 3, setting it straight and right forever and ever and ever. Never a chance of a fall again. So creation will be remade. And Peter says, there's going to be a day, and it's going to come, and it is going to be cataclysmic. It is going to rock the world, literally, to pieces. And it's going to happen without any prior warning of, get ready. Are you ready? All you're going to have is some general signs of what's going to happen. General signs. And those general signs can be applied to virtually any time in our history. Not one particular time, but every generation has seen and said, these are the signs of the day of the Lord. They're here now. Every generation since Christ ascended into heaven has been saying that. How much longer, how much longer? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus does give us uh, a couple more insights into the general culture and timing of the events of the day of the Lord. And when we say the day of the Lord, it generally is referring to not a specific moment in time, but a general happening of events. Uh, as we saw in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, it talked about um, uh, those that are dead being raised and meeting Christ in the sky, coming down, and those who were alive would meet them as they're coming down. Uh, so it's talking about the return of Christ. It's also talking about the judgment seat of Christ. It's also talking about the new heaven and new earths. There's a lot of things taking place, events taking place in this period of the day of the Lord. It's not a specific day as a calendar day, but more or less these events are all happening at the same time, and so it's acknowledged as these are the this is the day of the Lord, the events that are taking place. And so Jesus explains that a little bit in more detail in all of um, Matthew chapter 24, but the verses we're going to look at is in verse 36, and I'll read those for you in uh, Matthew chapter 24. But about the day and the hour, no one knows. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to the crowd. The day and the hour, no one knows when all of these events are going to happen. So don't take out your calendar and try to guess the calendar day. No one knows. And just to make sure we understand what no one means, he says, not even the angels in heaven. Now, you would think if any created being would have some, like, inside information about what's going on, it'd be the angels surrounding God's throne, worshiping and praising him day and night. You would think they would have a clue. Okay, this is what God's plan is. He hasn't told you. He hasn't told mankind. But we kind of know because we see all the workings in the background. Even the angels, he says. They are clueless when it comes to the day and the time. And then he says, just to make sure we understand no one, he says, nor the Son, nor him, nor Jesus as human connected to divinity. Two natures in one person united forever, even in his humanity. The Son stood there and with honesty told the crowd, I don't even know the exact day. Now, as fully God, he knew the day, but as the Messiah, as the appointed one, as the one who came to die for our sins, as man, our substitute, 
He didn't know. Just like he needed to sleep, just like he needed to eat, just like he felt pain, he felt sorrow, felt grief. Those are all qualities that we share as humans. God doesn't share that. God doesn't sleep. But in his humanity, he did not have a clue the day or time that this was going to take place. And he says, but only the Father. Then he continues and says, says, as it was in the days of Noah. Now remember what happened in the days of Noah? Real quick, little Sunday school Bible lesson about the days of Noah. God told Noah, hey, I've got about 120 years, and in that 120 years you need to build an ark because it's going to rain and flood. Even though it's never rained yet on earth, I'm going to let it rain, and it's going to flood, and it's going to destroy everybody. And so build an ark, take your, brother, or your, your sons and their wives and your wife and two of every animal and a couple other pairs of other animals, and I'm going to save you. So we remember the story of Noah. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And we're told in Genesis that God was the one who shut the doors of the ark, putting his seal of protection upon them. But everyone up until that point was probably thinking Noah was crazy. You're building a boat. Why are you building a boat, Noah? It's never rained. What are you talking about flood? We've never experienced a flood before. The first rain and flood happened when God brought it. And for 120 years, the guy labored to build an ark to protect themselves and the animals. People had to have thought he was crazy. They were eating, drinking, having marriage, and just enjoying their life. And Noah, crazy Noah over there on that hill, is building an ark. But just as in that day, when Noah entered an ark, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, did people have a warning about the flood coming? Yeah, they had a warning. They had Noah building it. They had Noah preaching that God came to him and gave him this message. So they had the message, but they still didn't know the day or the time. They just heard the message, rejected the message, and went on with their life. A lot like how many people respond to the gospel. They hear the message, they see the message, they see people getting together, but they go, oh man, don't they know it would be so much more comfortable if they stayed home in their air conditioning? Well, yeah, it would. What are they all uptight about? Rules and regulations and laws and doing this and don't doing that. And I feel so judged when I'm around them. They're hearing the gospel. They're seeing the gospel lived. And they just simply reject it, saying, ah, oh, there is no God, no judgment coming. Noah, you're crazy. Christian, you're crazy. We're doing just fine without God. He's not even in the picture. If he was, it was a long time ago. We got technology now that tells us how to die, when to die, why we die. We don't have any of those kind of mysteries anymore about how life begins. Science has explained it all. We don't need religion. And so they put you at arm's length. They laugh at you. They ridicule you just like they did Noah. And God says, Jesus Christ himself says, same way in the days of Noah, going to be like us today. I'm going to come, and that flood is going to overwhelm them, and they will perish in their sins. 
just like it happened with Noah, is going to happen with the return of Christ. Well, Paul continues and mentions that in verse 4 through 8, gives us some uh, guidelines, I guess, and I've kind of phrased this as a way to prepare for this, because we know it's going to happen, but we don't know the exact specifics of the day and calendar time that is going to happen, but we know it's going to happen, just like the flood happened with Noah. So here's some of the things that Paul says should then be on your mind. Stop trying to guess the day and the time. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to put the puzzle together. You're not going to figure it out. You're going to write a book, and you're going to look like a fool when it doesn't happen. Now, that's happened many times before. So Paul says, basically, therefore, this is our response. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Now, while Paul hasn't told us the exact day, he has told us it's coming. And so we're no longer in the dark. We're no longer going to be surprised. We're no longer going to be shocked. Oh, he really is coming on a cloud. I had no clue. We all have a clue. We all have that information. We all know the day is coming. That's, I think, from Paul's perspective, the whole battle. We don't have to know the day, but you know the day is coming. Okay, so what do we do? You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night nor the darkness. So Paul's saying basically we're so much different than the world who does not know Christ. They are asleep and in darkness. And the kingdom of, the kingdom of Satan is described as the kingdom of darkness. And heaven is described as the kingdom of light because we have it revealed to us. We see Christ as He truly is. We see God as He truly is. We see the events of this world as they truly are. We're not in the dark. We're not clueless. But those who don't know Christ are considered living in darkness, living in denial, living rejecting Christ. And so he says, you're children of the light, children of the day. We don't belong to the night nor the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Now, he's not talking about sleeping at night physically and being awake during the day. He's speaking of a sense and cognitive understanding of what's going on. You already are enlightened. You are awake to the facts. You know the fact is coming. You know the events are around the corner, whatever the corner that might be. You know that they are there. You're not, you're not blind to them. God has sweetly and beautifully revealed this truth to you. He continues in verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. You see, there is a great difference in the way we approach not just life, but what the future might bring. We're not oblivious to it. We know that there will be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. We know that we will die. We know that we will be present with the Lord. We know that there will be a time where He returns, and all of His saints, whether dead or alive at the time, will be united with Him in the sky, coming back down to a new heaven and a new earth. We have that knowledge of what the future will be. 
And so Paul says, this is what you need to do. You need to put on faith and love and hope. Faith, love, and hope need to adorn you, need to be part of your character, need to be part of who you are and what you expect and what you do. Faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, love. Paul's mentioned that before in 1 Corinthians. Love being the most supreme of all those characteristics and attributes that we can possess and we can share. And he connects with it. Faith and hope. You see, we are a people of faith, hope, and love. So when the future is unknown to us, the exact events of it and the exact timing of it, it does not matter because faith, hope, and love protect us from fear. If the past few months have taught us anything about how the world reacts to the unknown, it's fear. Fear is their default. Fear, and then, of course, a whole bunch of other things like grabbing power and tyranny, but, whoo, i got to stop now. Fear overwhelms the world when there's the unknown. They are motivated by fear, they are trained by fear, and they try to instill fear in others. And you respond completely different. You respond with faith, hope, and love. Paul says that's what you adorn yourself, that's what you protect yourself with, faith, hope, and love. And so the very first moment you start buying into the fear that the world presents, your response is, Lord, protect me. Let me have faith knowing that you know best. Let me have faith in you knowing that even if the world ends, I'm still safe and all of your brothers and sisters are still safe. And when the world says, oh, all hope is lost, no, no, no. My hope is not found in medical science. My hope is not found in the economy and the stock market. My hope is not found in health. My hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. You can weather any fear that the world shows you when Christ is your hope. And then love, the ultimate of our expressions and the ultimate expression of Christ to us, who first loved us while we were still enemies. He loved us and then told us to respond to others in that same love. So while the world is fighting and scammering for a piece of bread and a scrap, we can lovingly and honestly share from our heart all that we have because we're doing it out of love, not hoarding out of fear, but we can be actors of love. Paul then says there's other ways in which we respond differently, and that's in verse 9 and 10. He says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that really, I guess, the end of the entire discussion of responding in fear is, listen, you as a believer, and this is only for believers, you as a believer, it doesn't matter if the world is destroyed by nuclear warfare. God has not appointed you to wrath. And the wrath he's talking about is what? Hell. That's the real pain. That's the real suffering. Starving, I imagine, is really 
difficult. I mean, I've gone a, a day without food and it's a challenge, but I can't imagine not having any food and starving. That has to be hard. That's not the wrath God's talking about, being uncomfortable in this life to the point of death. The wrath God is talking about is not economic destruction or political anarchy. The wrath he's talking about is hell, the real place of eternal soul torment. He's not appointed you to the real wrath. Rather, he's appointed you to salvation through Jesus Christ. You see, God, Paul, Jesus, every apostle, everyone that's ever lived in Christ and now has died in their faith realizes that all the inconveniences and sorrows and pains of this life, as real as they are at the moment, are nothing, nothing compared to the glories of being in heaven with Jesus when you die. And I know it is hard right now to divorce those two things. Life is hard. It hurts. It's difficult. It's uncertain. We're not denying that and putting our head in the ground like an ostrich. It's real, but it's not lasting. And so maybe it lasts for 50 years. Unthinkable. No, we don't want our uncomfortable lives to last 50 years. That's nothing compared to an eternity of absolute pure joy and pleasure and satisfaction in the presence of God. And you will look back at 50 years and go, man, I would sacrifice a million years to have this. But this is a promise only, only for those who have grabbed onto the gospel and trust that Christ is their Lord and Savior. It's not for those who know the story of Christ. It's for those who believe it and trust it. Big difference between knowing the story and believing the story. The devils themselves say, hey, I know all about Jesus, but I don't believe in him. Knowing about it is not the same as believing it. And then he ends with the take-home. This is Paul's very own take-home for us. So in light of the fact that the day of the Lord is coming, I get it. Knowing that I'm not going to be told the time, so I have to be patient. Knowing that there are some things that I can do in the meantime, put on faith, love, and hope, I get it. And realizing that my future is still going to be very okay because I'm not going to suffer the wrath of God. Jesus has suffered that on my behalf on the cross. He says, this is your take-home. He says in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Paul knows this church inside and out, just like Christ knows us inside and out. And says, I'll tell you what you can do. Notice Paul doesn't say, make sure you worry a lot. Make sure you gripe and complain a lot. Okay? No, he says, make sure you encourage one another. Make sure you build one another up. How do we do that? I think it's as simple as what we just did this morning. We look at God's Word and say, hey, you know what? It's okay if we don't know the day and time. I know you're inquisitive and you want to find the details out. I know it. So do I. The only detail he's going to give you is 
he's coming back. Not going to tell you when. Not going to tell you where. Not going to give you any more insights as a, except for just as he ascended into the clouds, the angel said he's going to descend the same way. Well, I really don't even know how he ascended. So when he comes back, it's going to be brand new knowledge and information for me and for all of us. And so Paul says, just take these words and encourage one another. Just like he said at the end of chapter 4, therefore encourage one another with these words. If you don't know what to say someone who's living in fear, open up your word and start sharing. Saying, you know what, I heard something about that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I might have to look in the table of contents to find it, but let's find it and let me read it to you. Because these are encouraging words that you can be saved from the wrath to come through Christ. You can be saved from fear through Christ. You can be saved from the unknown of what's going to happen tomorrow through Christ. Not that all that fear and worry disappear. It's still there, right? We still feel it from time to time, let's be honest, yes. But we can overcome that a lot easier. We can overcome it because God has given us the tools. God has given us faith, hope, and love. God has given us a Savior that we can run to anytime in prayer and say, help. We can run to him and say, help my unbelief. I don't believe enough. And he'll help us. And we can help each other by not reciting all the terrors of this world and complaining about it, but reciting all the hope we have in Christ and encouraging one another with the truth. Let's pray. Father, help us, not just because of this time and age that we're living in now with the fear that's running rapid in our culture, but help us at all times to be people of faith, hope, and love, to build each other up and to encourage each other with your word. Because, Father, I don't know about the rest of the, your children, your brothers and sisters here, but I know, Father, I get encouraged every time I know that you're coming back and we're going to be okay when you come back. Thank you, Lord, for giving us these promises. Help us to be patient and help us to inquire rightly about your word and about the future. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, Amen.